Returning to our annual theme that we had this last year and this year as we've been going through the book of Matthew and taking this journey with with Jesus. And we are in a section now from Matthew 21 through 25 where we're getting now a description about the rejection of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is now going to come into Jerusalem. And even though we are in Matthew 21, we are at the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And you say, that's a lot of material still. Uh, you would think that we've got weeks and weeks or months and months or anything like that. But as we enter into Matthew 21, we are beginning this final week. And as this week begins, we are going to see Jesus making proclamations about himself and the ultimate rejection repeatedly from Jerusalem and from its leaders. Uh, as was just read for us, this is a, a key timed moment now in Jesus' life. That Jesus has made preparations so that he can now make his declaration that the king of all the world, your savior, has now come to Jerusalem. And that's the essence of what is happening, as was just read for us in Matthew 21 and those first five verses. You'll notice in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. He sends two of his disciples to go into the city and says, Go tell this certain person in the village that I need the donkey. And if they ask... Why are you taking the donkey? <laughs> you just say, the master, the Lord has need of them. And that's going to be enough. And what you have here is, is a recognition that what Jesus is doing is preparing this moment. Uh, everything up to this point has been preparation for his final arrival into Jerusalem. And there has been times where Jesus has told people that he has taught or healed to not tell anyone about this. And now Jesus is ready to make his proclamation. And he's going to do it in an amazing way. Because we're told in verse 4 that he is doing this to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Well, what did the prophet say? Well, Zechariah 9 tells us that when the king comes, behold, verse 5, he will come to you humble, mounted on a donkey and a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. That when the Messiah comes, when the Savior and King of the world comes, he's going to come in riding into Jerusalem. And when the people saw this, they were supposed to draw very important conclusions. And I'll show you the context on the screen of Zechariah 9 that his arrival on this donkey was not just simply that you would go, oh, hey, there's a guy riding on a donkey. He must be the king. But there was more to it than that. And notice that the rest of the quotation, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. When he comes, it was not that this is merely the king of Israel, but this is the king of the world. 
His rule will be from sea to sea. His rule will be from the river to the ends of the earth. That this is the beginning of what all the promises and the hopes that God had proclaimed to the world are now beginning to come into fulfillment. And he is going to now show himself to be the king that has arrived. And in this section, you are now going to see two responses. And it's important to notice that there are Two responses that happens. Let me show you them, and then I'll talk about why I think that is important. You will notice in verse 7, we are told that while they brought the donkey and the colt and put, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that were followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. I want you to see that we have two groups and we have two crowds that are reacting here at this moment. Jesus is on his approach to Jerusalem. You'll notice that he does not enter the city until verse 10. And as he's coming along and making his approach, you can imagine as he's coming to the Mount of Olives and he's coming to Bethphage. And you have these crowds that have come with him that have followed him in Judea and from Galilee. And it is these people who are with Jesus, who have followed him this distance, who are making a stunning proclamation. Hosanna to the son of David. Now to us, that doesn't really mean a whole lot, but that is a really loaded proclamation. Hosanna means Lord save us. And son of David is a declaration that this is the one that God promised that was going to be a descendant of David who would sit on the throne for all eternity and his rule would be from everlasting. And in a simple sentence, they are saying, this is the one, this is the Lord who has come to save us. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the son of David of whom God promised would sit on that throne rightfully and rule. He comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, save us in the highest. And so just imagine that scene as Jesus is coming into the city and making his way over the Mount of Olives and through the Kidron Valley and making his way up to Jerusalem that you have this crowd just shouting, this is the one. Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And it's such a disturbance and such a noise that as Jesus begins to move into the city of Jerusalem itself, you'll notice that we're told in verse 10, the city of Jerusalem is going, who is this guy? what's all the racket about what's going on with this person 
And it's important to see that there are two groups and two distinctions. You have the crowd that is in Galilee and you have the crowd that is in Jerusalem who are asking, who is it? And the reason why I want to show you this is because it's going to be those of Jerusalem who are going to say crucify him. And sometimes people have read that and go, how could it be that people on, on Sunday and Monday are saying, Hosanna, blessed you come in the name of the Lord. And there's a few days later say crucify him because it's not the same group. You have one group who has followed him from Judea and Galilee who are making the proclamation. Here he is to save. It's the city of Jerusalem who have their arms crossed going, who is this? And chapters 21 through 25 are all going to be about how Jerusalem is going to go. This is not son of David. This is not one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not the one. And they are going to quickly turn against him. And we will look at that over the next few weeks. But we'll even see it here in our study. Because verse 11 is really not the end of this scene. Even though we have headers in our Bible. And we can be tempted to stop here. But we need to see the first action. That Jesus takes with this proclamation of Savior and King. Who has come into Jerusalem. And I want you to kind of visualize. What do you think he would do? What would you expect him to do? Because I would imagine it's not what you would expect him to do, what you read here now in verse 12. It says in verse 12 that Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I don't think that was what I expected. And I don't think it's what Jerusalem expected. As here is the king who's come to save Hosanna in the highest. He walks right into the temple and he just makes a mess. He starts throwing tables over and he starts running out all the money changers and the people who are selling the pigeons and the birds and the animals for sacrifices. He runs all of them out as well. He just makes a massive disturbance in what's supposed to be the worship of God, the temple grounds. And he just runs them out. And he gives a reason why. In verse 13. He said to them. It is written. My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. Now what Jesus does here is he takes two quotations from the scriptures and merges them together for his answer. And we need to really look carefully at his answer to understand not only why he does what he does, but he's making a very definitive point about Jerusalem and what has ultimately gone wrong. You'll notice in verse, verse 13, it says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of This is a quotation from Isaiah 56 and verse 7. And what you see in Isaiah's prophecy, as well as the intent of what Jesus is saying here, is he's showing that the purpose of the temple is to bring people to God. 
If you know anything about the temple and its purpose or the tabernacle and its purpose, as you go through the scriptures and you read about the directions as it's given to Moses or the directions as it's given to David and to Solomon, is that the tabernacle, the temple was the place where God could meet his people. You would see the glory of the Lord fill that tabernacle and fill it again with the temple. This is God coming to be with them. And here is Jesus making this point that the point of the temple, the point of this place is supposed to be a place where God can be with his people or to say it another way where people can draw near to God. And is that what's happening? No. Rather than allowing people to draw near to God, it's turned into a place for making money. It's turned into a carnival and a circus with pigeons and animals and all of this noise that's going on in this place. Rather than it being a place of worship, a place of prayer, a place where people could come and get closer to God, there were barriers put in place, keeping people away from God. And so Jesus is clarifying that and saying, here's why I did what I just did. Because it is said that my house will be called a house of prayer. Now, I don't have time for this, but please note the way that Jesus quotes this is not God's house should be a house of prayer. But he has plenty to say my house. There are an awful lot of undertones of him proclaiming himself Lord as he talks to these people. He comes in and goes, this is my house and my house is to be a place of worship. It's supposed to be a place where I can be with my people. It's supposed to be a place where people can draw near to God. Now, I think it is important to think about that picture. Because I want to point out, now the parallel is not what we read here in the first century of a temple. And we have a church building, and so that's your parallel. But I'd rather you think about how often the New Testament tells us that The church, not building, but the church, the people of God. You're the temple of the living God. You're supposed to be the place where people draw near to God. You're supposed to be the place where God comes near to them. You're supposed to be the means by which people can access God and see God. And so here is Jesus, I think, teaching something very important that we, when we are together, are supposed to be the people who are addressing spiritual needs and helping people get closer to God. Now, to me, I hope this answers why you might see when we do things here that it might be a little bit different than other places. That one of the things that we do not do is we're not going to sell you coffee and have a snack bar out front. And we're not going to have an entertainment show and barbecues and fundraisers and kids camps and yoga classes and try to squeeze money out of you. And have social events and do all of these kinds of peripheral things because the whole point is supposed to be helping people get closer to God. And Jesus walked into just, I can't imagine what a circus that had to look like. With all of that going on when he walked in there. And he just throws it all out and goes, do you understand why we're here? Do you understand our purpose? Do you understand that it's all about 
drawing near to God and not being distracted by the peripherals. And so Jesus then cleanses this place. And I like to say it this way. This isn't a movie theater, folks. That we come together so that we can worship God. We come together not for entertainment, but so that we can draw near to God. That we can offer praise and offer prayers and offer worship to God. That that is what we are supposed to be as the people of God as we draw others near to do the same thing without hindrance or without distraction. And so Jesus puts that purpose back in place. Now, I want you to think about for a minute, you have the religious leaders, you know, it's not just any old person. This is the temple and it's temple leaders, the religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees. How did it get to be this way? How have they moved the target so far that they're doing all of these other things and missed the main point? And Jesus addresses that In the rest of that answer, when he says in verse 13, but you make it a den of robbers. That's a quotation from Jeremiah 7. And you might read that and think that's innocent enough. Oh, den of robbers. You know, they're a bunch of cheats. But when Jesus quotes that, it's way worse than that. (laughs) In the context of Jeremiah 7, when you go back and read it, is that the people were full of sins. They are described as stealing, murdering, committing sexual immorality, swearing, and worshiping idols. But they were okay before God because they had a physical temple. And so Jeremiah comes along and says, this place is a den of robbers. It's a house full of immorality. And you think you're fine because you're in the house. But your heart is corrupt. So Jesus really lights it up right here. (laughs) When he walks in and goes, my place is supposed to be a place of worship. And rather than it being a place of worship where people draw near to God, it's a cover for a bunch of rebellious, immoral people. You can imagine they're going to love him for that. But that's what he's telling them. The whole point Jesus is making is it's supposed to be a place where not only you draw near to God, but you're changed and transformed, not where you feel secure in continuing in your sin. But that's what they thought. They thought as long as the physical temple was there, we can keep on sinning. And thankfully, we don't do that today where we think, well, as long as I go to church, everything's fine. We would never think that. Well, we might. Sometimes we like to put our pointers on certain activities and go, well, it's okay for me to continue in my rebellion and sin because at least I go to a church building every week. Or at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so that I know. That's what they were doing. That's exactly what they were doing. And that's why Jesus is walking in and saying, you've got this all wrong. It's supposed to be a place where you are changed and transformed and healed and draw closer to God. And I want you to notice that that's exactly what happens in verse 14. Notice what this almost subtle statement that proves the point. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That's what's supposed to happen. 
is people come near to God and find hope and help and healing and transformation and change. But rather than that happening, there was just a circus going on. It was about the peripherals. It was about physical things rather than coming to God and finding God in that place and being transformed. Well, in verse 15, I love how Matthew words this. (laughs) But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. I love how Matthew loads this one up. When the leaders here saw all of the wonderful things that Jesus did. And verse 15, when the children were in the temple, so they've kept coming along. They followed him all the way up into the city. Here they are in the temple. And while Jesus is throwing out money changers and getting rid of the pigeon dealers and all of that, and he tells them that this is supposed to be a house of prayer and not a den of robbers, the children, it says in verse 15, are still crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Here's the Savior. Lord, save us. Lord, help us. Here's the one that we need. When the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and heard the children saying, Hosanna to the son of David. What do you think the rest of that sentence should say? And they were thrilled that the Savior had come. They were ecstatic that the king had arrived. They were overjoyed and praised God. The end of verse 15 says, and they were indignant. You see the contrasting responses. One group is saying, here's the one to save us. And the other group is saying, who do you think you are? They are indignant. That Jesus does this. In fact, you'll notice they challenge Jesus in verse 16. And notice that they say to him, do you hear what these are saying? Here's the children all shouting, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna, son of David. And the leaders come up to Jesus and say, do you hear what they're saying? And the implication is you need to stop them. How dare you allow them to keep calling you son of David? Lord, save us. How dare you allow that to keep coming out of their mouths? Notice what Jesus says. Verse 16, Jesus answered, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You shall have prepared praise. (laughs) Do you hear what they're saying? I sure do. What a great period right there. Yep. (laughs) He doesn't say, oh, sorry about that. Yeah, I didn't catch what they were hearing. I'm glad you translated that for me. I better tell them to stop. Yeah, I heard what they're saying and they're right to say it. And he uses Psalm 8 to prove it. He quotes from Psalm 8 now. Now, don't have time for Psalm 8, but Psalm 8 is a, a psalm of praise to God. And those first two verses It opens in praising God and saying that nursing babes and infants will praise the Lord and rightfully so. And Jesus says, don't you know what the scriptures say? The children should be praising the Lord. And here again, Jesus very subtly goes, the crowd is right because that's who I am. 
The leaders say, you need to make them stop saying that because they're calling you the Lord, the Savior, the one that was promised as son of David. And Jesus goes, yep, that's right. I'm always, I'm always amazed. Scholars will come along and go, Jesus never said that he was the Lord. Really? Try it again. Look right here. He just said yes. <laughs> you hear what they're saying? They're saying, Hosanna. Lord, save us. And he goes, yep, that's right. In fact, they're right to say it. And the irony is the religious leaders who should know who Jesus is and know what the prophecy is and know what it means for him to ride in on the donkey and have the people shouting Hosanna. They should be understanding who Jesus is, but it's the children who understand. The children grasp it and the religious leaders are indignant. They completely miss the same. And with that, verse 17, Jesus leaves them and he leaves the city and goes to Bethany and stays there. First action of Jesus, a very prophetic action. Walk in, condemn the temple, and then make a proclamation of its judgment. He looks just like a prophet. And the leaders are just outraged by this. All right, some, I think, really important messages from what we see Jesus doing here as Jesus begins to set the table of the final week of his life and ultimately have the rejection of him as king and savior and son of God. One of the things that I think is absolutely amazing to observe is that sometimes when we talk about Jesus' arrival, that we only frame it in terms of what Jesus came to do is to set people from their sins. And that's absolutely right. And that's absolutely what they're proclaiming. Lord, save us. But did you notice that there's a little bit of irony here as the children and the people, as the outsiders of Jerusalem come in and they're proclaiming, Lord, save us. And it's not only Lord, save us from our sins, but Lord, save us from these hypocrites. He comes into the very temple itself and condemns them. You have made this a den of robbers. It's supposed to be the place where people come near to God. And instead of it being this relief and healing and restoration, it is oppression from the leaders as they continue to wage their spiritual warfare on these poor people by making them do things that were absolutely ridiculous, extorting them and misusing their power against them. Rather than bringing people closer to God, they were holding people back. When we get to chapter 23, Jesus is going to unload woes upon the city of Jerusalem. And about half of those woes are about how those religious leaders kept the people from drawing closer to God. And it's visualized here in this scene. This should have been a house of prayer. And instead, it's turned into a haven for hypocrisy and rebellion. Unfortunately, some things don't change, do they? Unfortunately, some things don't change. Hosanna, Lord save us from people who have authority as spiritual leaders and then use that position to take advantage of other people to cover over their own gross rebellion. 
I, I'm stunned how many times that happens. Where people are put into a place of spiritual leadership and spiritual authority only to use that authority to harm others. It's exactly what Jesus was fighting against. That's exactly what was going on in Jerusalem. He calls them a den of robbers for being that way. This is not supposed to be a place where we cover over gross rebellion. It's supposed to be a place where people find healing and refreshment that they need from their sins. And so Jesus was setting the people free from their sins, but he was also setting people free from the horror of those who were in authority who were oppressing them because of their hypocrisy. And this leads to this this proclamation that I really want to zero in on for the rest of our time. In saying in verse 13 that my house is supposed to be a house of prayer and you make it a den of robbers, is that you have to see that Jesus' message was about repentance and about cleansing. Jesus does not come into the city and go, man, you guys are doing great. Love how you're doing. Appreciate your religiosity. You know, at least you're trying hard. He just condemns them. He just rips them and tells them, you're not right with God and you need to change how you're living. Friends, I want to step on this point here for a moment because I think it's really important. We live in a time in which it is believed that God should not tell us to change, but to keep living how we are living. I was watching a, a fascinating documentary. I, uh, you, might, you might have seen it. I won't say what it is, but it's one of, a documentary about a megachurch that, of course, went way off the rails and is doing all kinds of terrible things and wrong and all of that. But one of the things that was interesting about the documentary is that one of the criticisms that was laid against it was that the church did not accept their lifestyle. And I chuckled to myself for a minute because I thought that was the only thing in the whole show they did right. (laughs) It really was the only thing in the whole show they did right. Because I want us to think about, there is never a time where Jesus told somebody, keep living how you're living. There was never a single encounter where God came to a people and said, you know what, you're fine. I want us to think about this really important truth. Jesus, when he said, when it tells us the very beginning of our study in Matthew, it said that he was proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Remember, the message was. Hey, everybody, keep doing what you're doing because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is always the message of God and should always be the message of the church to tell people that I don't care how you're living. Your lifestyle is not enough and there is more room for change. There is more that needs to be done. To put it another way, if we're not supposed to be changing our lives, then why do we need Jesus? Just go do what you're doing. If you think you're fine, just keep going. 
The whole point of Jesus coming was to tell everybody we need to change. And he is the mechanism of that. He is the means of that transformation. But we live in a time right now that says, I need to have Jesus and not change anything. I will just keep doing what I'm doing. And I I just ask, well, why do you need him? If you're good just the way you are, then why are you looking at Jesus? The whole point of Jesus is that if you're tired of your sins and you're tired of shame and guilt, you're tired of the pain that comes from not listening to God, there's an answer. And Jesus is that answer. To say this another way, you can absolutely come to Jesus as you are right now. Absolutely. Wherever you're at, whatever's going on, you see Jesus with open arms to every single person. But you know what Jesus always does in those encounters after that? He tells him you can't stay where you are. You can come to me just as you are, but let me start showing you the change that needs to be made. Let me show you how your life can be transformed. Let me show you a better way for life. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He does not come to these religious leaders and applaud them and say, you guys are doing great. He comes to them and says, there needs to be changes. This is a den of robbers and it can't stay that way. Let's make it a house of prayer. Let's make it change. And friends, I will challenge each of us that there is not a single one of us in the room that Jesus would not come to and tell us there are more changes that need to be made. There's not a single one of us that he's going to come in and go, you know what, your lifestyle's perfect. Just go ahead and keep cruising. That is not his message. His message is always... Now, what about this? I love those encounters. Man, I don't have time. But you think about like the rich young ruler. I have kept all these laws since my very very youth. Jesus never turns around and goes, that's great. Keep doing what you're doing. He goes, yeah, but what about this? How are you doing about wealth? Let's talk about that one is what he does with him. Sell all that you have. There's always room for more. There's always room for more transformation. There's always room for more change. We should never be satisfied and go, yep, just take me as I am. I'm going to stay this way. That's the glory of God is that he is here to change us and move us into the very image of Christ himself. That's the transformation that God has in store for us. And friends, we'll just simply be the same den of robbers that Jesus condemns. If we don't listen and change. We can either allow the word of God to hit our heart and change more about our lifestyle and more about the way we are and the more about the way we talk and more about the way we act and more about the way we think and just keep changing and just keep changing. Or we can be like these leaders and say, well, at least I go to church, so I'm okay. Den of robbers. I'm in the building, so all of my sins are fine. And I'll just keep living how I want to live. Jesus challenges them. And that's why they were indignant. Nobody likes being told. You're covering your sins. 
and you need to change before it's too late. That cuts deep. But that's exactly what Jesus said. And I challenge you today to think about where you are with God. And hear the words of what Jesus is saying. We are to be a place of prayer. And we are to be a people that help others draw near to God. That they should be able to see Christ in our lives. And I don't think any of us would raise our hands and say, nail it in. (laughs) Yep, people see Christ in me 24-7. Now, when you hear the words of Jesus, you hang your head and go, okay, I got some more work I've got to do. And that's the heart God wants. That's the heart God wants. He takes you where you are, but he doesn't want to leave you where you are. He wants to keep moving you forward to the home of eternity. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, what challenging words we heard from your son. And Lord, we pray that not only as individuals, but as a collective people here, that we would be a house of prayer, that people would see us as a means to come to you. And we ask for forgiveness for the things that we do in our lives that keep people from seeing you and keep people from drawing near to you. Lord, cleanse us. Cleanse who we are. Cleanse our lifestyle. Cleanse our words. Cleanse our behaviors. Cleanse our minds. Just cleanse us from top to bottom, Lord, so that we could more be reflective of who you are. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see those blind spots, those areas of sin and rebellion that we so easily cover over and excuse. And we pray that you would give us victory over those areas. Help us to overcome those temptations and sins. Make us more faithful to you so that we can draw more people to you as we try to shine as light in this world and our salt of this earth. Lord, thank you for these challenging words. And Lord, we thank you so much that you do receive us as we are, but that you do want to change us so that we can not only live better lives here in this world, but Lord, so important that we could enjoy eternity in paradise with you forever. Lord, we long for it. And we pray that we would continue to be changed so that we could enjoy eternity with you. And it's through your son we pray this prayer. Amen. We'll sing an invitation song. This is your opportunity to think about where you are with God, and we would love to help you in any way to draw closer to God with all of your heart. That's what we are is a, a bunch of people who are sinners trying to be changed and transformed by the grace of God as we move forward with him in this journey, in this walk with him. So can we help you in any way? Anyway, you have a, a need that we can address. We would love to help you in that you can let one of us know after. You can talk to Dan, talk to me, talk to somebody next to you. If you're ready to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins to start your walk with Jesus, we're certainly happy to help you do that as well. Won't you let us know or come forward now while we stand and while we sing.